Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. So, um, my guest today is Selena Mason, uh, who is head of master planning uh, for Lendlease, one of the great international companies. And uh, your work stretches over Europe, I think. So, we've you've got a, a bit of an empire there, Selena, but also fantastic uh, background. Uh, which we're going to talk all about because the structure of this would be something like uh, your greatest hits and then we will talk about how it's been for the last couple of years through this COVID experiment, this extraordinary challenge to us all and then maybe I'll talk to you about where you think both um, cities are going I guess but also where your your trade of master planning is going. I'm quite interested uh, in, in the changes there might be but I, I, I wanted to start with um, you, you, one of your uh, a starting point maybe for you, although you were in private practice before, is that you were heavily involved uh, in something that a lot of people actually internationally do know about because they think it's quite a good thing, which is the Commission for Architecture and Built Environment. So before we get to your current work, can you say a bit about CABE and about your role in CABE? Because I know it's a long time ago, but it was a good thing. And by the way, so for those people who don't know, and although I uh, obviously... I don't want to sound like an egomaniac, but when I was working in, uh, although I am one, obviously, when I was when I was working for the government in 25 to 2010, I, one of my roles was to liaise with the chief executive of CABE. Um, so we were, uh, um, my various ministers, especially people like Yvette Cooper, were very interested in CABE. So I do have a bit of previous. So tell us about CABE and, and what you were doing. Well, I joined CABE, oh gosh, in about, it was about 2001, I think. And CABE was very young at the time. It, 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 it came off the back of the, um, the Urban Task Force That's report. Right. That, yeah, it was commissioned by Tony Blair and Prescott when they entered government in 97. And uh, yeah, this, the great and the good wandered around Britain for a while to various cities and put forward an urban task force report that then became a white paper. And one of the one of the elements within that was set up um, an organization that would champion and promote good quality in the built environment. I think there was a real recognition that um, our cities were not performing particularly well in terms of the quality and that our our construct our, our development industry wasn't putting its weight, wasn't doing as well as it could do. And actually, um, I think the other really driving part of it as well was that the new government knew that it wanted to commission lots of public buildings particularly um, and to initiate a lot of regeneration so i think there was a recognition in the urban task force report that there were just were not the skills there um so it was a it was so i started in 2001 it just been set up i think 99 2000 or 2000 so there it was tiny when i joined and i was there for seven years so i saw it grow to from when I started about 15 people to um, something like 50 and um, and saw it grow in its reputation and um, and I worked my way up through the organization I started off there in um, what was quite an experimental team called um, enabling led by Joanna Joanna Averly who's now who's now the chief planner and uh, the experiment was really okay let's let's pull together a group of experts who we can call on as an organization to then assist largely public sector clients do their job better and become better clients for buildings and places. 
uh, out of that came all sorts of guidance. Um, uh, creating the best neighborhoods was one of the documents about master planning that I helped co-author. Creating excellent buildings was another one. So these great, fantastic client guides. And um, yeah, in 2005, I then was promoted to director of design review, which was a particular part of the organization that reviewed big projects. I, I wanted to, the reason I wanted to start with CABE is because it actually is reasonably influential internationally. I think you, you might know this. And, the, and the, also some of the documents have been floating around for years. You know, I mean, the, uh, I still quote the um, Start With a Park. Um, yes, that was, that was a really important one. Yeah, yeah. and they still, you know, I, and whenever I say the phrase, it sounds <laughs> still sounds revolutionary. Um, so I think that's really quite interesting. The, the other thing is the, the design review. Let's talk about design review because that's also become an influential idea. What is design review? What was it? It's, it's, an, it's quite an old idea, really, fundamentally. It's basically, uh, and it, it's well known in, in particularly architectural, the architectural world, where essentially you get together a group of peers who, who you present your work to, and that peer group crits it, in effect, you know, um, reaches the conclusion around whether it's good or not. And, and if it's not quite good enough, what could you do to make it better? Um, and at its best, it's a fantastic methodology for really improving the quality of, of, um, of buildings and places. If you get it early enough, I think part of the problem with it is oh, it's too late. That, that was and it becomes very difficult. Yeah. And that often was the case with, with CABE. <clears throat> you know, we, we would, uh, if you found yourself on the back foot, it would often be because, because a large scale project wasn't, didn't come soon enough. Yeah. And so it would get a complete slating no, and it would then go in for a planning application. And, and our letters were public in the public domain once it went to planning. So I was often, and my predecessor and the people who came after me were often in the kind of the central, uh, the center of a storm around cave slams type headlines around certain buildings. So it's, yeah, um, yeah. It was interesting. The, the reason I, well, uh, I wanted to talk about it a bit is the, um, the design review idea is the right idea but your point about what stage in the process and also I, I began to become obsessed with the idea of the business model of developers and and at what stage they could put in design elements because they seem to spend so much time time on buying the land and you know blah 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 they had very little time left to think about and money left yeah. in their own heads to think yeah. about design so we had, yeah. to, we had to find a way to get in earlier it's interesting in new south wales where i live they have um, a, quite a, rig a, a rigorous thing called SEP 65, which is a, a kind of, um, it's, not re it's not a pattern book or anything, but it basically gives some pretty strong guidance to developers that they can't, they have to do certain things if they're going to do flats, you know, apartments. Mm, mm. And, and there's a view that it's led to better quality in New South Wales than other states of Australia that don't have the, this thing. Yeah. So, that, so that's, yeah. I think, interesting. Um, uh, so, uh, and of course, our, our, our great mate John Rouse was uh, was sort of was your boss at the time, I think, was he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. He was the chief executive when I joined, and then um, then Richard Simmons became chief executive. Okay, yeah. What was it? it must so have been like two thousand and five. So I just want to say two things about this, and then we'll move on to what I think is a really interesting part of, of your career, which everybody will want to hear about, is the uh, Olympic design stuff that you're involved in, and then the legacy stuff, which I didn't know about. And also, you've been working for the great or, or advising the great council of Havering. Which I'm pretty passionate about because yeah. I used to because I used to run something called the Thames Gateway London Partnership, which is all these East London councils. Of course, and Havering, you did. Yes, Havering yes, was yeah. a, a leading council 
and I love them. So I think it's very important that we we do great work uh, there. So but I was to tell you two stories. One is I had the great job once of trying to get Richard Rogers, the great architect who was also the chair of the Urban Task Force, mm-hmm. to reduce. Uh, the government was asked asked me because I was working for them to can you go and talk to him about reducing his 135 recommendations to 10 or something, <laughs> you know, sort of, and. He looked at me like I was something the cat had dragged in, you know, it was kind of uh, that I was the greatest barbarian he'd ever met. And he was probably right. You know, the, uh, so that was, that was uh, quite good. Um, the, uh, what, I, what I want to say to you about the, so let's go, let's go to the Olympic um, the delivery authority. So yeah. you were deputy head of design at the Olympic uh, delivery yeah. working. This is becoming a bit small worldish because uh, you then work with uh, Alison Nimmo. Yes. Who, who yeah, then went on to become, she was my boss. Then went on to become Dame. Uh, so yeah. there's, there's a theme here uh, of people it's, like uh, I know. Yeah, the diaspora. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so that must have been a very exciting part of your career. So uh, oh, and you yeah, were right into fantastic. it, right? So uh, yeah, give right us, a, give us a flavour of what you're up to. Okay, right. Well, I start, I left Cape in 2007 um, to join the ODA, and I was there for seven years. So I saw it from mm-hmm. 2007 right through to 2014. So so the games not quite in the middle but in the midst of it and um yeah i started i had actually just been involved in a design review of the broxbourne whitewater rafting oh, okay. center yeah. Yeah. which cape slammed <laughs> <laughs> we were not happy with it at all in its first in its first guise and then i joined the oga and alison said to me one of the first things she said to me was right selena you you set this mess up for yourself so now you're gonna have to get us out of it so I had to work on that project um, uh, to get the to get the whitewater rafting centre sort of in a better condition. It was it was kind of it was yeah it was essentially a landscape project, but it was con- the, the original design was just conceived as a building. Um, and uh, so I the first few years I it was it was early days. We were doing the master plan. Um, the first projects were come were starting to get. developed the designs we were appointing designers so it was really exciting days kind of the park was still um in its first stage you know the river with the very steep banks and kind of all of these different uses amazing allotments that everything had to move it was incredibly controversial the greatly blue wall went up people were up in arms um and uh, i was just focusing basically on ensuring that we were appointing good design teams, we were developing the design, particularly at the early stages when it really is, you know, you've got all to play for when it's just on paper, getting the designs in a good state because money was so tight, you know, everything, it was time and money was such a sort of all pervasive pressure. Um, So the earlier you, you kind of hit on a good design, the better, frankly, because you'd stand a better chance of delivering it in the way that you needed to without too many lumps on the way. Before we go in, into this uh, detail, I want to ask you uh, what to say to people, because, you know, sometimes Olympics are a bit uh, controversial about whether they change things and whether they're worth the money. And mm. the, the, one, of the, one of the contexts for this, which, you know, and you've got the, the, the role of, you've got some urban regeneration projects under your belt, at, uh, well, everywhere, but in Lendley's as well, is that people need to understand that the the Olympic proposition in East London was premised on the urban regeneration of that area. And it wasn't, it wasn't just about building some stadiums, although they were important. 
it was about it was about not just and even and even interesting it was about a structural thing as much as a people thing in, in the sense that we, we, there was a big divide in london which is the lee valley and in a sense we, we kind of crossed it through the uh, olympics and so it became yeah almost part of almost part of central london rather than where it was it's a very interesting market uh, phenomenon as well as a psychological phenomenon yeah. but you well, it's, go, it's yeah. really interesting that boundary was um the lee valley has been an old boundary right back to yeah. it was the boundary between dane law and wessex yeah. between you know when ancient ancient boundary yeah um and it's funny how those boundaries linger you know the the fact that it sits the olympic park sits at the juxt at, at the at the point of confidence of four london boroughs i think it was no accident that it was a kind of somewhat forgotten and abandoned part of, of it's one of my favorite this is one of my favorite topics i i i have oh. sort of odd topics of interest but one is because i've been involved in local government in that area those boroughs the boundaries were always the worst parts and they are always it's the, the worst parts of any it's city. always the back yeah, yeah. They're always the worst parts of any city. And it's partly because they don't want to do any good along that line. They might benefit people on the other side, you see. So they just well, forget about it. Yeah. And I think something about the voters that don't have the kind of yeah. weight of the ones in the center and the influence. You don't want to influence, you don't need to influence voters outside your boundary. You need to influence voters yeah. in your boundary. Yeah. So yeah, they, it was the back end. And um yeah, I it was I, you know, when I when I listen to the government now talking about leveling up in this country, I don't know if uh, you know your audience in australia will will know that term but um you know the idea of leveling up is an old idea really and certainly an east the london idea, idea it's an east london idea <laughs> yeah. we did we that. were we were it was called confluence wasn't it or con convergence con con convergence. convergence that's it convergence. i wrote the i wrote the report it's my it's my there nobody, you go. nobody remembers I, I, but i you, worked it for you're the great leveler upper the five borough unit that uh i was in the room and we just thought that the, 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 the organizing principle was convergence which is basically to to level up the uh, the outcomes are in key areas yeah. between London and uh, East London and Central London, and our and our private joke to each other was fight for the right to be average. Um, exactly. <laughs> so so leveling up, you complete. Thank you. It's, it's an East London invention, and Boris has yeah, yeah. Boris, Boris backed a, it uh, in East London, and and he, but I don't yeah. think, I don't think he's I think it's much more difficult than he than he thinks. So anyway, right. Well, so, I, you know, I mean, the whole leveling up agenda is is the regeneration proposition. You know, yeah, it goes way back yeah, in time in many ways. And it's always yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea but, of yeah. um, creating better outcomes for people who are suffering negative consequences, partly because of where they live. And yeah, the Olympic Park. The the whole idea was to have um, a legacy project to to build yeah, for the future. The yeah. games was simply the catalyst that allowed you to invest nine billion pounds in this place and, and a great a thing worth saying and by the way I, I really didn't know we were going to I just didn't think about this until I, I reminded myself this morning but the uh how about this because I think this is also about how design gets improved by people pushing designers up as it were you know the uh, yeah challenging, absolutely challenging you yeah. and I know the challenges are objective yeah. you know like money yeah. and time and the area is <laughs> people can't imagine that it was like a tip you know it's kind of this is not yeah, an, it was easy, unbelievable. You know, an easy mm. not an easy place but the local authorities were also pretty good, you know. The um, so you got like Newham, which would uh, Newham's like the Jack Russell of the dog world. You know, it doesn't know how big it is. You know, it will it will it will just take on anybody. And it was it was just I loved Newham, and I, I thought they were great. But they were always challenging to to, to you know how does this benefit local community? Yeah, yeah. You know. Anyway, so well, I think I think the interesting thing about that is partly that 
one they had been working well you know this they've been working together for a long time because the games were bid from 2005 and i think they've been working together as as to develop a master plan for a long long time before that yeah so they were used to working together and used to sort of envisaging this place in a very different way to the way it was um so they were kind of holding us to account and then on the other hand the oda took their planning powers away from them which is a which is a kind of controversial thing to do in many respects you know it was done for good reason and and out of necessity but but i think that that taking those powers away does mean that the planning authority or the that the authorities will be looking at you with very beady eyes going okay you've got this power from us you show us that you're going to do the job you said you were going to do and even better what I love about that, though, is that the, uh, there was a clever game played by the, the, the councillors to some degree, which is they ended up with their officers writing the reports to the Olympic Delivery Authority planning uh, subcommittee, but not, yeah. res- but not responsible for the decisions. And I no. think that's an interesting way of... Uh, the reason I'm raising it is because a lot of people listening are interested in things like development corporations mm. and how they work. And I, I, I once... Uh, I, always, I always think that it's... Um, I'm very good at talking about uh, my Australian wife doesn't get this because uh, you're not supposed to talk about your big failures in, in Australia. You're supposed to really thought, talk about, you know, be positive, you know, but, but I, I once helped create the short-lived Thames Gateway Development Corporation. And, mm. and part of the problem was that it was meant to be a kind of a benign thing that didn't take planning powers away from the authorities. And I, I didn't really negotiate that very well. So we ended up with not a lot of decisions being made. So I think everybody, yeah. everybody learned by the time of the ODA that, the great thing about development corporations is that they can get things done um, yeah so and you need to facilitate that you need yeah. to make you need to put them in a position so they can do that and i think yeah. the other thing it was interesting actually moving from cape to the oda i mean cape the oda probably was one of the most powerful organizations that had been set up <clears throat> around about that time um and coming from cape having spent the seven years beforehand kind of coaching and cajoling local authorities to really use their powers effectively and choose to exercise them. Um, I went into the OGA assuming that that it would be, you know, it'd be in the center of this kind of all, all powerful agency and things would just, you know, it, it would get things done because of its power. But actually, in a way, it got things done partly because of that it had the it had the ability to do that but it but because we needed to move so quickly and we we needed decisions made very quickly it was always better and this was this was i think Alison's great influence on it she always wanted to proceed we're in a collaborative spirit with with our neighbors you know to on to get everyone on board to have the stakeholders support because she knew that as an organization with all of that power if you were making controversial decisions, it didn't, it didn't, the power didn't matter actually. What the, the problem was the controversial decisions. So you were better off making decisions that everyone supported. And so that made you, in a way, it made us completely bend over backwards, particularly with the local authority, the four local authorities, to just keep them on side and keep the momentum and and drive it forward through collaboration, not necessarily through being dictators. It's very interesting that the because <clears throat> we we need to throw in another name here, which will be known to many people listening, which is David Higgins, who is the um, chief executive of the yes, Olympic Delivery was. Authority, former head of English Partnerships, former head of Lendlease, mm. um, former chief executive of Lendlease. 
and uh, it plays to an interesting theme really which is that uh, when you're doing some big city change I, I suddenly realized that there was like a network of people that actually were very comfortable with each other they might differ, disagree on certain things but they could talk it out and that the, and the local authorities were involved in that sort of big big network the other thing i wanted to say which you might not have heard from anybody is it a positive thing that, uh, that was felt because i was working with the boroughs quite a lot before i went into government and then i actually ended up advising the chief executive as you know dan labad mm. on, on the olympic mm. village is that mm. lend lease had a good reputation uh, so that the private sector coming to this had a good reputation in that in that area and i asked the local authorities why because i you know i thought uh, i didn't know lend lease that well I, and mm. i said oh because they take us seriously because they they talk to us properly and um it was like a revelation the the yeah they had not been treated with respect i, I have to say i was quite i was quite disappointed about british developers and also because they hadn't had the experience british developers hadn't done as big as big city mm. change mm. so they were very positive about these guys coming in anyway we'll come back to that but that, so yeah. um so you you That's were really interesting. you were at the heart of all this stuff right so the then you then you and you, at some point, we have the games, which uh, would, would, you know, of course, I'm, I'm in uh, Australia at this point. I'm very, very, very envious. And uh, so, but it was great. It was fantastic. And I loved it. And by the way, people, I want to talk about the legacy. And then I want to talk about your current role. The legacy things quick, quickly, in a sense, all this really important, I think. People forget that legacy is like in the park, but also what the park enables, right? And the, mm, you've got mm. things like hack, the transformation of Hackney Wick. Yeah, totally. Which has become another yeah. interesting international exemplar. You know, people look at it as like interesting mixed use, uh, yeah. kind of, you know, how you evolve places. I mean, yeah. I was trying to think of a, a, a nice way to say it, you know, but uh, I used to live near Hackney Wick. I lived in Hackney for 20 years. And it was a bit of a tip, you know, uh, and they've tra it's been transformed. The fact that uh, here, uh, is it near East or here? Here East. You know, and, and again, the local authorities are really actively involved in making sure that that was, you, that was a, an economic legacy. Of like startups yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. the real and this, the 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 perception of Stratford in the market, you know, right? You've got Stratford International there, which is your stuff. Mm. Would mm. never have got. It was never going to go to Stratford. We pushed the city east, um, and I think it was a fantastic, you know. And I know there are you can complain about this and that, and that didn't work very well, and you know what's that look like and all that stuff, you know. But the sheer and the fact that it was like thousands of jobs. And people can like you know there's 50 percent social housing or whatever it is so in mixed use study you know i mean mixed tenure kind of stuff on the website this is all really good stuff people whine about this stuff. Stuff, you, how, yeah. I, I mean how how, will you, how how do you see the legacy um, i i think it's really interesting actually because it's 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 evolved and you know i think in many respects you know we'll probably come on to talking about master plans yeah. but you know the master plan that was conceived of as the legacy master plan right at the beginning when it was consented when the ODA put the application in, which was, what, 2007, um, it, was a, it was different. It was very different. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was um, much, much more modest than it became. I think success breeds opportunity and breeds further success. You know, once, you know, the act of changing is kind of the act of envisaging something. And if you can't see it, see it happening, it doesn't happen. So it's, it's, what's what was what i found really interesting about the legacy was the way in which different people came into the legacy organization and kind of pushed it further pushed it more and and added more in so 
um, you know, there was a big fight, obviously, about the stadium in the early days. So, so yeah. when when I was at the ODA, the stadium was going to be an athletic stadium only. It was only later on that that the whole football thing was revisited. Yeah. Okay. That pushed Just, it forward. For people who are listening, it's where West Ham play. Yeah. Um, yeah. I originally conceived of as just an athletic stadium. So a big decision to push it back into, to make it, a, to convert it into a, a football stadium. And then, um, then well, then there was a big cultural investment, which is now coming out of the ground being built, which is the um, the East Bank, it's called, and it's got the BBC there. And, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of little ecosystem, well, it's a huge ecosystem of um, different cultural institutions. So the VNA is there and... Um, uh, a, un a university is there, UCL is there, you know, so there's this, this amazing conglomerate. It would never happen. No, and it's, it, I think it wouldn't have happened without the initial success, the games, the success of the games, the success of the in early stages of legacy, then created confidence. And once you have confidence, then you're off. And it just also, starts yeah. to build and build and build. I, I think that's absolutely right. I know, I, I think you're also saying, it's rather like somebody, you know, the famous question I was asked of, um, you know, was the French, well, communist, Chinese Communist Party leader, but the 1968 in France, what do you think of the French Revolution? He said, it's too early to tell, you know, and I think uh, that it's essentially still happening. I mean, the legacy yeah. of Bradford is still yeah. happening. And of course, yeah. your master planning survived the crash, you know, so it's, uh, yeah. which is all people forget these rather important material yeah. matters, yeah. you know. Look, well, yeah, and this is, that's the sort of whole contingent thing, because the interesting thing about here is, it's, it's, it's a converted shed that was used for the broadcasting um yeah. as at the or during the olympics and it, that was downgraded because of the uh crash that was going to be something very different and a kind of legacy building because the private sector had to pull out in 2008 or shortly thereafter it was converted it was the, the the scheme was just completely downgraded to a shed and then that subsequently then became here east and i think the character of here east with its sort of quite industrial aesthetic and this sort of kind of you know well it's a great big shed that's being bashed around to make it into something really interesting and an, a, a center for innovation and lots of different small innovation businesses has become something quite specific and extraordinary that would would have been a little bit probably too glossy I, I, I do this i i took a, a bunch uh, i went with a bunch of west uh, western sydney people to see uh here east about two years ago just before covid mm. i think and they were mm. very impressed with the with yeah. that and i think also i would always say this because i'm obsessed with this matter but essentially the uh, people like paul brickell one of the leaders of uh, mm. of newham was adamant from the beginning that there would be a kind of here east you know, an economic use. But I think yeah. the point is a really good one. It's a bit like the point about King's Cross. Everybody thinks that the King's Cross master plan was genius, you know, because it's got like a St. Martin's College there, you know. Well, that only happened because of the crash. The, totally, totally. They, they could, yeah, it was an accident. It was know. an accident. They couldn't get a proper investor to yeah. go there. They could only get a university. So, never, oh, well, fine. Let, we'll, that'll do. That'll <laughs> do. So I think we, we must never, happenstance and serendipity are very important things to plan for totally. in master planning. You, you've so got I'm to gonna... be prepared for the contingent and <laughs> yeah. the opportunity. Now this plays to what is a master plan? So come on then, you, you know, like a, like an international expert, what is a master plan for people who are like, never done one, never seen one? What is it? Oh, it's a, it's a tricky thing to pin down. Okay, well, I, I see it as both process and product. So you can have a master plan, which usually is a drawing of some sort that, that shows a future of some sort. 
unusually has a load of documentation that sits behind it that talks about all sorts of strategies about socioeconomic and um, investment and you know all sorts of other stuff that sit behind that um, and but it is also a process which is which i think is the more interesting bit of it really which is the the way in which you work together with your stakeholders and the community to talk about change and to envisage it and co-create it and go forward and then deliver it and that, and that process of delivery again is is something which is um flexible contingent and builds on its own success it builds over time that's probably a very vague way of talking about it but um and and yeah I, is it i there is that well i ask for lots of reasons because i'm very interested in, in this and also the extent to which it's a planning plan i don't know sure what i mean really but yeah. the, you know yeah. i mean the you, you instinctively think that town planners should be doing master plans but architects tend to do master plans you are listening to the grimshaw podcast the city series with your host tim williams i think it's that there there that well there are that that's the other interesting thing and sort of sits at this cusp between it being and not being a, pro, a thing as well as a process and yeah it has to be consented obviously so there is a planning component to it uh, and it has a governance partly I mean, essentially, it's an agreement between the public sector and the private sector about what's going to happen in this place. Right. The public sector agrees through a planning process and says, okay, this is what we accept and acknowledge as being um, the, what the future looks like. And then from the private sector perspective, okay, that's it, you've got your planning consent, but actually then, then you have to go about building it and delivering it. And you have to have your own governance mechanisms to make you to do that in the right way. Um, which you don't necessarily need to share with the planning authority it's just how do you go about building a place over time it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of collaboration and then in terms of the people that do it planners yes you need planners you need architects you need actually master planners people who have expertise in master planning and you need landscape architects and you need engineers you need a you need a range of skills you can't you cannot you can usually tell if a master plan is drawn by just an architect to be honest because it will just be about buildings but actually to make it about place you do need engineers and you do need landscape architects and you do need master planners now there's a word that we we didn't hear so much about uh, until cave and, uh, and which is place we we, yeah. we we're now pretty obsessed with the word place we talk about it a lot in, in new south wales they've actually got a, a place Kind of part of government you know they, they they're very interested in this workplace and they because they know that communities kick off when bad places are created so and i think it's great that the workplace is you know but yeah. it, it is a kind of master planning word because you, you as you say you're trying to bring everything together to make a better place i guess yeah exactly it is you, you you're drawing on everything that's there and you have to you have to be you have to be a futurologist in many sense you have to be able to you, you have to conceive of a future that looks good to you so, for instance, we're we're doing a master plan um, for Thamesmead, oh, yes. in, um, which is which is which is a amazing place for doing I a master bet. plan. I bet it's Alphaville. It's uh, it's where uh, Clockwork Orange. Was yeah, filmed for yeah, those yeah. Who don't yeah. know this charming part 
of the south uh, side of the Thames in Greenwich and Bexley, um, which is full of great people and they deserve, I hope it's about to come to them and they're going to get yeah. better transport connections and all that they kind of stuff. Anyway, but I, I, do want to, I do want you to talk about this. This is a live example. Yeah, so 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 it's a lot. It's got a long journey because we do need to we need to persuade the GLA and government to invest in better transport connections, yeah. and and so there's a whole process that we're going through at the moment to kind of envisage the place and talk to the people about what they'd like to see there, and work out what could work there, you know, and then we'll you know we'll develop a business case for it, um, but obviously we know that that's because it's going to take a while to kind of get get all these all these stakeholders in the line to agree to take it forward with us um we're not we're not going to put any spade in the ground if we're lucky for five years or so it's going to be a, it's going to be a while and by the time we build it out we're going to be well on our journey towards zero carbon lenny's has said it wants to be absolute zero by 2040 right. so the so the act of master planning for thamesmead we know is got has got to be totally framed by creating a place that is going to support zero carbon lifestyles. How do you do that? That's very, very interesting. I, I was thinking in my head when I was, when I asked you about master plans, I was thinking in my head, I wonder if the next generation is a net zero master plan or a net zero precinct or whatever yeah. it is, right? Yeah. So that's essentially what you are yeah. thinking through. It's a big challenge. And, and the interesting thing, I mean, it's fascinating. I love the way that it's not, you, you, there's always new stuff to take on board. And um, that's certainly one of the big ones. You know, things like, I mean, we know Lendlease at the moment is looking at, well, what's going to be our carbon budget for the future? And that's a global budget. And so obviously the regions will have their bit of it. And then each project within each region will have a bit of that. So chances are most of the projects are going to be, they'll be, we'll have to think really carefully about where we invest in steel and concrete and all that stuff that generate that requires a lot of carbon and when you build a place now you have no idea how much concrete gets involved in this it's not just the buildings it's the pub realm as well i mean there's usually you know a meter of concrete beneath most streets um so could we could we think about saying okay well what's a carbon free public realm like what would that look like right it might mean fewer cars it might mean cars only in certain places it might mean much smaller delivery vehicles because you can't take you know because the street won't have so much concrete underneath it um much more green you might it might just be mostly green you know and actually they're more like lanes yeah so it's and that's that's a really fascinating thing to think about you know that, that actually we'll have to completely reconfigure how we think about places and how they're made what we make them out of so I think that's fascinating because I mean, I, I, in my head also, I think uh, I've always been envious of people who have kind of train sets to play with, you see, and the, uh, uh, in a sense, you've got one of the most, I think, one of the most important places in the country uh, with Thamesmead, which is for people to understand is a kind of 60s version of a new town that was built yeah. um, in, a, in a rather windswept place, a long way yeah. from economic opportunity, the classic failure to think about how people get to work and what they work in and all this kind of stuff. But and then a loss, and actually, as so often happens with these things, very long-term projects, they kind of, they lose momentum. Yeah. yeah. And they lose, and people lose confidence in them. Yeah. And they get sort of abandoned. And then subsequently at um, Thamesmead, a lot of the land then was was um, shifted into sort of classic late 70s, 80s, 90s cul-de-sac type. Um, yeah, very, yeah. very low rise. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of large-scale roads 
essentially for a suburb, a suburb driven by car use. So there's a lot of re reconfiguring to be done. And, you know, I think that a lot of the, the issues that, that have plagued it was, was partly that loss of confidence and partly I think um, we haven't in the past been very savvy about what kind of density of people is needed to create a kind of local economy yeah. and that can sustain itself and make it and make it feel that there's vitality and there's stuff happening and there's enough amenities and services for you so that you would actually want to go and live there. And I think that was kind of, you know, the, the vision they originally had there was fantastic in many ways and actually, you know, perfectly sound. It was all about creating a place in a landscape and using water and sky and green to make somewhere incredible to live. Um, but it just never had the, the center of gravity that it needed to really make it kind of purposeful. It's been, it's it was always going to be a suburb, I think, uh, but it was I, unconnected. I think um, before we go to today and ask you about how, how, how you are and what you've been up to in the last two extraordinary years. And it's interesting, I think Cape has had a long-term influence on our recovering our understanding of how places work well. What are the conditions of success and the urban task force as well right so i think yeah. you know pebbles dropped in ponds can still ripple decades later and i think they do you know so i think that's really good work well done we, we we've been recovering our understanding of how places work um now let's do this yes. how places work so everything was going really well we're all you know game on and then covid hits so how how, how have you managed to sustain how's it been for the last two years of of the lend lease world um and how and then i'm going to ask you to think of, tell me about how you think the city in london uh, london's been going as well and where you think it's going mm. so uh, mm. how's it been to work in this environment it's been uh, well i you know i think the thing we've all learned about it is that it's 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 had an impact on on people in so many different ways and so much of that is about you know the home that you live in as well as the job that you do and um so certainly for lendlease i think broadly speaking it's been you know we've we've managed okay the most of the building sites were shut down for a short period but then we're allowed to reopen again um it sort of slowed things down inevitably as it did for all businesses but um i mean for me personally it made me in many respects a bit more efficient because i've got so many i'm looking after i'm i'm working with all of the teams doing master planning and it actually you know if, if you're on a team's call you can you can be in birmingham one minute and thames me the next whereas before i would have had to have you know actually said no i can't be in birmingham i'm going to be in thames Mead or vice versa so it made me a bit more efficient i think um and it's been interesting to see the way in which designers have adapted to the oh. to working from home um, um and, and they've been pretty impressive actually uh but you can certainly see now that we're back in the office and we're starting to have workshops back together again that that those conversations the sort of really exciting serendipitous conversations but you know that just that that um generate really interesting ideas a lot of that is much easier when you're in a group of people well, together a, inevitably core, this is a core idea mm. isn't it i mean before i get mm. to that i want to ask you you've got an international portfolio so how was it liaising with uh, was it milan was one of the milan yes yeah yeah and how, so and i i 
that's that was that was um that's been interesting as well because I, I would be going out to Milan every three to four weeks actually beforehand um to sort of dip in and just make sure that to, to, to act as a kind of sounding board I guess so we we had um I mean it worked you know they're they're kind of they're moving at pace so essentially I've been doing design reviews quite a formal relationship with um Milan that worked quite well actually because they were just at a stage where they were starting to do buildings so it was kind of relatively easy I think design review on on teams has been surprisingly straightforward actually it's quite a good way of doing it so do you think let's go to this big topic of because you know it's the crystal ball time really um so everybody's been thinking through Although I've been quite surprised personally, I don't know about you, but there's been a kind of anti-urbanism in some of the, uh, it's almost as though the, the moment of crisis for cities, some people said, aha, you know, uh, I didn't like that model uh, anyway. Um, so agglomeration is, is kind of became a bit of an enemy when it had been economically hugely important. And people said, oh, well, you know, um, I didn't like those cities anyway. And then uh, you've got people say, well, I love uh, homeworking, and uh, and we thought that might be like you know everybody, you know, that's but the laptop class can can do it, but not yeah, everyone. yeah, not everyone. No, but, but I do think something like you know, despite the fact I'm a passionate desirer for status quo ante, I want it all back like it was before. It probably isn't going to be like that. And I've been coming up with this crude shorthand of the 75% city, which is the 75% of people back in the office, 75% of people back on mass transit. That's a very different city um really what's your feeling about where this is sort of going and is it city by city i mean there are people who think for example that if you if you've got a city with, where there's a long commute there and a difficult one you might do more homeworking because that commute mm. puts, you, puts you off it's mm. pretty obvious kind of stuff mm. but how do you think it play what's your feeling yeah i think that whole that whole equation that everybody makes uh, you know has to face at some point or often in their lives about between travel time and place of work and place of um place where you live is has adjusted there's no doubt about it um i think people are tolerating longer journeys if they can spend more time at home so i think you're probably right 75 that sounds probably about right i, I you know i think it's going to affect different parts of the economy in different ways certainly the as you say the laptop the laptop classes they can make more decisions to stay away um and i think that that means that work is going to change i think you know to get to get them back into the city i think the city has to become a much more attractive environment to work in yeah um so i think i think the combination of the places and how they need to change so the city of london i think needs to just it's a question of resilience, I think. You know, the City of London, I don't think, has got, it hasn't got the same range of opportunities to do different things as, say, Westminster has. Like, you know, you can see yeah. Westminster coming back more quickly in a way than the city. Because it was much more city mixed just, before. Because the people are living there, people are doing yeah. lots of different things there. You know, you kind of feel in, in the City of London, it should be, you know, those big banking halls should become artist studios and theatres. And, you know, you need more, you need, a wider range of things happening and so as space starts to get get unlocked in the city you so would think, hope yeah. that city planners are thinking in those terms of broadening the range of activities so the, there's a kind of exciting thing in it in a way i don't want to sound decadent but you know the idea that we might have to work for a living to uh, to get people back to the to the cities and we have to be more inventive 
than before yeah, and and to I understand so. that offices need to be re redesigned streets need to be redesigned yeah transport yeah. needs to be redesigned and and to some extent work needs to be redesigned yeah. as well yeah. it needs to become a pleasure you know it's like it's you go into town to enjoy it you know and i i i, I now go into town to go and meet people not necessarily in the office but certainly colleagues wherever and I'm trying to, I'm sort of experimenting with a bit of a rule as to, as in that not going into town with my laptop. So I never take my laptop in. Because if you've got your laptop in, why would you need it if you're going to talk to people and you're going to be in meetings where there's conversation going on? And that's the point of it. Why would I go into town to sit with my laptop and answer emails when I can do that on my phone or I can do it at home anyway? That is a core cool thing. I mean, it's about being special. I think the problem for me with this, yeah. I, I believe that, and I think that's true. The, the, the economic benefits or the, the, sorry, the economic impact so far of agglomeration where you, you, you create spillover jobs, but you know, for people, so top jobs create four, four or five spillover jobs in the centre yeah. of London for people in hospitality and tourism and all that kind of stuff. I'm a bit worried that we, are not going to find it easy to replicate that impact um even if we do reinvent the city centers as a bit more central experiential districts and offices get reformed the 75 percent 80 percent city is still not quite as economically oomphy as the as the previous one i think is my my concern i i don't know i don't know i'm kind of i'm interested in that i, I mean you know who's i don't know who knows what's going to happen yeah. but yeah. i think it's um the, the previous, the pre-COVID city was was very peaky. You know, yeah. you would go in there in the morning, you'd leave in the evening and you'd have lunch. So you'd have these kind of intense moments of activity in the city where all transactions were taking place. And then in the evening, obviously. And I'm just wondering whether with a broader range of things happening, perhaps fewer people, but wider spectrum of activation over in a less peaky way during the day you may well one you're using your spaces a bit more efficiently and two you're you might actually have similar number of people similar number of jobs but just wider range of jobs i think also we might see it depends our rents didn't collapse as much as i thought they were going to the the rents went down in in sydney about 25 percent of the peak by the way you know it was kind of really pretty, wow. yeah it's, it's gone back up but yes. it was a big big shock and I thought at that point, we might see younger companies enter the city. So you wouldn't see an empty city, you'd see a, a churn. Um, that, uh, and and uh, companies that mm. thought they would need a, an out of town office could get an inner city office because it was much cheaper. And I still think a bit of that will happen. We saw it in America in the, in the 1980s, yeah. where, you know, where the artists came in because the rents were cheap. Yeah, I think it will play out. I, you know, I, I, I suspect the government, certainly here and probably in many places, supported um businesses so kind of aggressively uh, my my instinct on rents is probably they were kind of kept in place i, I suspect there might be a bit of a shaking down in the future down, yeah, i think yeah. so i think so well, i wouldn't that, be surprised i mean it's very evident you don't need as much space yeah so yeah. that has to have an impact that's very interesting i think i may be right i think this so there's a churn coming but so there's two things about that then i want to end with a on a, a discussion about what you think um, do you think that there's a, a kind of COVID has helped the kind of radicalism around certain other agendas, I think, in an odd way, unexpected way mm. around yeah. public health outcomes, obviously, but also kind of ESG and uh, and the whole yeah. world of, of net yeah. zero. I don't think any of us thought that that was going to really get quite the public buy-in that it sort of seems to have at the, at the moment. But I, I, was, uh, I was going to ask about um, 
the future city, the uh, two, two things, I think, two demographies I'm interested in. People are talking about the youthification of the city workforce. That mm. the that the you know we'll end up with with more young people in the offices um, than we've seen, and that the some of the older heads or the ones with married with children might be doing the hybrid working a bit more. So I think that's possible. The other one, I worry about this, and I I don't look like a feminist, you know, but I you know I do think these things. The um the uh, I'm a bit worried that the women at home have been doing all the bloody work, but also if they're not in the office, you know, that they don't get promoted. So I, mm. I do think there's a, mm. a, a bit of an issue that hybrid working may not be in the interests of, of gender equality. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I had seen I had seen various articles recently on that, actually. And um, yeah, I th <laughs> so much depends in the end, I think, on the employer. Oh, um, yeah. And so much of this comes down to uh, it's the same story, I think, as uh, climate change. It's kind of it, there's always an easy conversation to say, you the you the individual, you have to you have to deal with this difficult problem. <laughs> it's your problem, not everybody's. Actually, I think in terms of um, the workplace, it it it's much broader now. It is obviously literally the office in town, but it is also people's homes and I think employers now now need to be thinking more creatively right. about how they engage their employees and how they deliver the equitable outcomes that they're obliged to by law let's not forget yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, ac across their workforce in a way that's compelling interesting and delivers what they need in terms of product productivity and better outcomes for very everybody. well put very well now the last bit the um so some people Whenever I say good things about Lendis, I always get attacked. Well, not attacked, but you know, people say, "Oh, well, you know, it's because you you know you work there a bit and you've got some friends there." And blah, blah, blah. but I, I when I came to Australia, I read about um, Dusseldorf, the founder of Lendis. I mean, mm. he, he had a really profound difference from other developers at the, at the yeah, time around totally. his interest in the community and mm. the environment. So they've been at this stuff a bit longer and a bit more. Totally, yeah. You know, I think that's, and I'm sure that's partly what it attracted you in the first place. So, yeah. the, so where I was going to go was. The rest of the world has been told it has to catch up a bit, actually, around this stuff, because the um, thing that many people in the, in the public sector might find surprising, one of the things that came out of COP26 was the way in which Mark Carney and all the banks got together to say they're going to invest in certain assets that are decarbonizing, you know, yeah. and they won't yeah. invest in uh, uh, mm. others that add to emissions or harm public health. <laughs> so yeah. the world has turned, I think. Uh, and yeah. So what do you think about that to, to end? What, what's the... Do you think that's true, and that the that there will be a requirement to do for buildings to be all everything from this point on will be designed in that context? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly speaking from Lenny's perspective, then yeah, there's an amazing commitment to delivering zero carbon, and I think we are definitely at the leading edge of that with our zero carbon by twenty forty. It's incredibly ambitious, and it acknowledges that there's you know we. We don't quite know how we're going to do it, but we have to do it. So, so we're going to commit energy, effort, money, uh, and innovation to it. You know, we have to achieve it. Um, I, you know, I've, I've, as you say, I think Lendlease has been, is kind of uh, an organisation that's been historically very much on the front foot in these areas too. And it's, but it has been fascinating to watch how the private sector has really yeah. pushed hard at this 
And you know, there are laggards inevitably. It's it's a, it's a spectrum between the the leaders and those pulling pulling along at the rear. But uh, you know, I think broadly speaking, most of the businesses I I'm I look at and I'm involved in are, are pushing forward incredibly. And it and and the the recalcitrant ones here is is to some extent the public sector. No, it's interesting. Yeah, that's really a bit disappointing. <clears throat> it's a good note and an unexpected note in a way to to end on. I think the world turned. And that a lot of it people did. haven't quite worked out. It's like the, the uh, it's like the analogy of the guy that goes into the uh, operation to have his leg removed, and still thinks he can feel his toes for years afterwards. You know, the uh, things have yeah. really profoundly shifted, and the private sector has been in the yeah. front of that. And just the last last thing, the um, so uh, I'm, I'm I'm the part of the reason I asked about architecture and master planning is because I'm working for Grimshaw, the uh, you know esteemed mm. international architects, and yeah. um, I. <laughs> They, you know, what a great time for me to join them. You know, it's great when you join something, but they win prizes. You know, at the time, everybody thinks it's like excellence by association, you know, that I've, I've in some way got something to do with this. And I haven't. But it's interesting that the, the things they've really done recently, like they won, um, the they were at COP26 with a, a building in, in Monash, which is a university building that is like hugely efficient in terms of energy. And, you know, was picked out by the World Economic Forum as the top seven greenest buildings on the planet, you know. So there's this, so I think architects are, are 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 not you know are in the vanguard of this thing and the, the ones who really get on top of how you do that I guess most effectively and I guess cost effectively as well will be the ones that really win this thing but I think they're Thank all going to go in that direction so look uh, look yeah. that was fantastic I I didn't realize that we were gonna that was uh, I. A wonderful it feels concept. like we could go on for another no, hour actually so so, i'm thinking i've just scratched the surface no, here. <laughs> well you know the, the series two you know you know the, the, the empire fights back um so look selena mason thank you very much indeed uh it's been a delight talking to you and it's a really it's going to end the series our first 10 programs of uh the city series uh which have which ended on a high note so thank you very much indeed Thank you for listening to the Grimshaw podcast, The City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. This concludes our first series on the city. Join us again in a few weeks for our next series, The Culture Series. We look forward to bringing you more conversations with the passionate and engaging people who design and define the culture of our cities.